Welcome to our gathering. Welcome to uh, what we call RHC, even though the people here are actually RHC. Take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter dose. Two, some of them are like, dose? What's that? I don't speak that. Two, chapter two, Ephesians two. Two weeks ago, we talked about who we were before Christ, right? We were dead in sin, followers of the world, followers of the prince of the power of the air, the devil. We were by nature uh, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We looked at that two weeks ago. That is the status of the unbeliever, the unregenerate unbeliever, the person that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit, who does not follow Jesus. We looked at that. Last Sunday, we talked about who we are in Christ, right? Who we were before Christ, who we are in Christ. We talked about that last week, right? It was like Paul was playing opposites in the text. We were dead before, right? But now we're alive and, 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 and we were followers of the world, but now we are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right? And we are not children of wrath any longer like the rest of mankind, but we are actually recipients of the riches of God's grace in kindness. That's what we looked at last week. How many of you guys were encouraged by that text? How many of you have been encouraged by Ephesians so far? I have, yeah, right? I have been so encouraged by the Word of God in this particular area, and it's encouraging to me, again, to see that you have been as well. This morning, we're going to look at how and why we've become who we are in Christ, like how we became that way and then why we have become that way. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, I'd like to read our main section for the morning. It's going to be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and uh, we'll read that out loud. You read it, follow along with me, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Are you ready? You're there, right? If you're at the text, say, I'm there. Okay, good. Verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, Uh, We lift up this time to you now. We humble ourselves. We want to exalt you right now, and we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to open our minds to the Word, open our hearts to the Word, open our ears to the Word, uh, and, and even more specifically, that we would hear that we would be impacted and transformed by the Word. Faith comes by hearing and so on, and that we would be Come, doers of the word. And so help us to do that this morning, Father. We, we give you this time, we commit it to you, and we humbly sit at your feet and desire to be taught and instructed and really loved by you this morning. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's begin at verse 8a kind of divided, you know, it's not a very big passage, guys, so I've kind of divided it into A, B, and C. I usually do that. Verse 8a will be, for by grace you have been saved. 
for by grace you have been saved. And I'm, I'm just going to come right out with both barrels, you know, firing and say that this is one of the most important truths in Christianity, of Christianity. It, it really is. This, this is... This is like one of the, uh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, massive truth about Christianity, right? He's the Savior. But this is, this is important, too. This is huge. This is pinnacle. This is big. For by grace you have been saved. It's one of the most important truths of Christianity. Saved by grace, I would say, is a fundamental truth. Like, if you are a Christian and you get this truth wrong, you're probably not a Christian. And, 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 and Lord willing that God, by his grace, would make you one. But this is, this is that important. And I tell you, it's one of the most misunderstood truths as well, especially by Christians. And anyways, it is a fundamental truth. It literally, right, for by grace you have been saved, it literally separates, right, Christianity from all other religions. It is the definitive it is the line in the sand. It is the thing, the definitive truth that separates Christianity from all other religions. It literally does, friends. All other religions are based, they are absolutely based on human effort and merit. All of them are. There's about 10,000 of them in the world today. If you go back, yeah, I wouldn't suggest maybe studying them all. Some of them have like two people in them. We just created a religion. But for the most part, they all have to do with, with human earning and human deeds and human effort and merit earning from God. That's really the fundamental basis of all other religion. To be saved by grace, however, is to, be, it is to literally be saved apart from any and all human effort and merit. Now, we talked about this last week in a, in a way. We talked about how grace is God's one-way love. It comes down to us from the heavenly places. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards spiritually dead sinners like you and I. Grace is unearned, right? It is not earned. Grace isn't even received, it's not even received. A spiritually dead sinner cannot receive grace. He doesn't know what it is. Uh, he doesn't understand it. It is completely foreign to his very nature. It, it's another language. He doesn't understand it. Grace is not asked for by the unbeliever. Spiritually dead people do not say, God, give me grace. They don't say this. They are not interested in God, and they are not interested in grace. Not at all. What they are interested in are the things of this world. That's what they're interested in. They are interested in those things that satisfy the flesh. And they literally walk in sin and trespasses. And, and you know what? We often say of people that are mixed up in things, how sad for him. He, you know, he, he must feel really bad about what he's doing or what he continues to do or how he's hurting himself. 
uh, in sin. But the fact of the matter is the dead, spiritually dead sinner actually really prefers what he's doing. He's willing to endure the pain, the suffering, the shame, the guilt, if there is any, if his conscience isn't completely seared. He, he, he's willing to endure those things because of the pleasures of the flesh. And so grace is, is really, it's the opposite of, of, you know, all of those things that we typically think, you know, that yeah, the sinner, he cries out to God for grace and he does these things. He's not interested in these things. I can tell you from my own personal experience as a spiritually dead man for 30 plus years, I wasn't interested in the things of God. I will have to tell you that there were times where I reached low points in my life that I went to church. Uh, when I actually got saved, I was going for kind of that reason, with the exception that it was an ultimatum that my wife gave me. Um, Phil, we're going to probably end up divorced if you don't get your act together and be a husband and a father and these sorts of things. And so, you know, I, I, I responded because I didn't want to pay alimony, because I couldn't imagine paying child support. Not because I really actually wanted to save my family or to keep things together. I, I was still even trying to go to church for some... You know what I was doing? I was just trying to get her off my back. And God's like, you're saved. <laughs> you know, it was just weird. I, I just, I can't explain it. But the natural man, he does not want these things. He wants what his mind wants and as we talked about last week or the week before or two weeks, three weeks ago, that you know, his will is really bound by what his mind wants. And so this whole idea of being seeker-sensitive is not biblical. People do not seek after God. They do not. In fact, they pretty much are like the marathoners out here. They run from him. I don't know if they're running from God. They're running to something to earn money for somebody. That's a good thing, right? But typically what we do is we, we're all like prodigal. We're running in the opposite direction. That's what the natural man does. The natural man walks in sin and trespasses, and guess what? They pretty much love it and prefer it. And when you challenge that, they're like, not for me. You can have your thing. That works for you. I like what I do. It's like you're miserable. Yeah, but you know what? In two weeks, I'll feel better. Or tonight when I do another bong load, I'll be okay. This is what people do. How have we become who we are today in Christ? Grace. How were we made Christians? Grace. How were we saved? Grace. That is what Paul is saying here. It's, it's all grace and Grace is the opposite of human effort and merit. In fact, grace and human effort, merit, these things, are completely incompatible. They are like oil and water. And I would say, too, that this is one of the primary reasons why unbelievers hate Christ, hate Christians, hate the truth, hate you know, the church why they hate the gospel, right? Because the gospel says very boldly and very poignantly, very plainly, salvation's by grace alone, man. It, that's it. I mean, that's the mark, right, of Christianity. It's, it's a grace thing. 
And so unbelievers, people on the outside of the church, outside of the faith, outside of Christendom, they, they hate that idea and that truth that it's all of grace. They can't stand that. They hate it. The gospel basically says that your best efforts are filthy, filthy, dirty rags. The gospel says your very, 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 very times 100 best isn't good enough to save you. Not by a long shot. The gospel says it is impossible to earn our way with God. And I was thinking about this. The gospel or the scriptures actually refer to the gospel as the good news, right? Uh, But if you think about it, the, the gospel is actually terrible, terrible, horrible news to those who believe, who think that they can earn their way with God. It's the worst possible thing you can tell that person. Well, I'm just down here trucking away, trying to earn my way, doing good deeds. I know God's favor's on me. Look what I'm doing. Uh, That's not how it works. It's all by grace. It's not by what you do. And they say, I hate you. I think we're all pretty much aware of how Christians are being slaughtered, pretty much like animals in the Middle East, in the Sudan, and by ISIS in in, in, in Syria and these places, right? I, I think we all watch the news Paquito a little bit, right? You don't want to get too much of it. Who is killing and slaughtering these Christians? Fanatical religious earners. Well, it's ISIS. It's Boko Haram. It's fanatical religious earners. That's what they are. They are fanatical about earning their way with God, people who are totally convinced, and I would say it's by the devil, that uh, they will be saved by their deeds. Those are the ones who persecute Christians. Our whole history of the church is, is, is just littered with that reality. Religious earners kill Christians because the Christian message is your earning is getting you nowhere, and they hate us, and they hate the gospel. Christians are a primary target around the world because our message has to do with grace, which is the opposite of earning and deeds and these things and merit. Think about this. Who killed Jesus? The uber-religious earners of that day known as the Pharisees, right? They hated Jesus' preaching, His message of grace. They hated it because it pretty much denounced and destroyed their life's work, which was deed upon deed upon deed upon deed. So what you're saying, Jesus, is that we are saved by the exact opposite of what we're doing? Kill him! You see, people get this mode of thinking that it's earning and deeds, and, and, and it... it, it That sears their heart into believing that that's the only way. And then when somebody comes in and says something different to them, they hate them and despise them, and in many cases, they kill them. I'd also like for you to notice that there is a sequence in the text, okay? There's a bit of a sequence here, and grace comes first, okay? So moving on, let's look at 8b. Look what he says. 
Through what? Faith. Now, there is a tremendous amount of misunderstanding surrounding faith, surrounding the subject of faith. Uh, and, 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 and I believe what I'm going to say is going to contradict what most of us believe and have been taught in some way. And I just can't wait. I'm going to watch. I'm going to try to say this and watch your facial expressions. Faith in Christ is not what saves us. Dang it, you're not doing it. <gasps> what? You know, with that, you could blow up a thousand balloons. Faith in Christ is not what saves us, friends. We are not saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to get this right into our minds right off the bat, and I know that it isn't and won't be easy because it really is the opposite of what we've heard over and over and over and over People talk about saving faith all the time, right? They talk about their saving faith, right? Or they preach things like, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Or, I'm saved by my faith in Jesus Christ, right? We, we hear these things all the time. MLJ wrote, faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation, the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is the cause of salvation. He says, what is faith then? Faith is but the instrument through which it comes to me. Faith is the channel through which this salvation, which is of the grace of God, comes to me. Faith is the medium through which the grace of God bringing salvation enters my life. This is what he says. And I, and I really like MacArthur's quick little statement. He says, faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. Love that. There used to be a song called Breathing the Breath, and I don't remember who did it, but it was really cool. It had to do with that. I really like that description. Now, look at those two words with me again, through faith. Notice how it says, through. Paul spells it out here for us as clearly as one can. Grace comes to us through faith. Faith is the vehicle. Faith is, as Jones put it, the instrument, the channel. And, and I feel that I myself have done this and others do it and continue to do it, that we put a lot of and maybe too much emphasis on faith this day. Faith this and faith that and my faith and your faith and I'm building my faith and I'm sharing my faith and, and it's his faith and it's her faith and it's all about faith. Would we all agree that Christians today primarily talk about faith? Amen? Why? Do we emphasize, question, why do we emphasize faith so much when it is only the vehicle or channel? Why don't we emphasize grace more? It's a great question. It's a very convicting one because I am a faith monger, 
It's all I talk about. MLJ continues, We must always be extremely careful never to say that it is our believing that saves us. Belief does not save. Faith does not save. Christ saves. Christ and His finished work. Not my belief, not my faith, not my understanding, nothing that I do. I like that. Now, we do want to be careful not to degrade faith. Faith is important. We just need to make sure that we understand its purpose and placement in God's work. Right? Faith, actually the purpose of faith, really, is to connect us in a spiritual way with God who is spirit, who is invisible. Right? Faith is believing in what you cannot see by definition according to Scripture. That's kind of what it is. Faith connects us with God. This is kind of its purpose. It connects us with God like Wi-Fi connects us with the Internet unless, of course, you have UVerse. It's in, it's out, it's in, it's out, it's in and out, it's out for two days, it's on for three days. Faith is an invisible connection with God, or as MLJ put it, faith is the channel. Faith also serves as evidence for grace. If a person has saving grace, grace, faith, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus will be present. If a person claims to have saving grace or grace and does not believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, you know, if he doesn't have the faith there, then he doesn't have grace. When grace comes, as it says, that's the sequence, when grace comes, faith follows, or faith is the channel by which grace comes to us. Grace, we would say grace and faith go together. But it's important that we get the order right. Grace happens first, then faith comes. And I would say, because it's very difficult for us to distinguish the timing of these things, that when grace comes, faith is half a second behind it. It's not grace. What am I doing? I got to do something with this. I just feel different. You know, two weeks later, Jesus, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's like grace, faith, but we must get the order right. And that's why I would talk about here too, the placement of faith and how insanely important it is. Most Christians today put faith ahead of everything else. They just do. They've been taught to do that. And yet the scriptures show us that uh, there are other things that actually come before faith, and they might be quick. There is a sequence, friends. There, there is an ordo salutis, that's Latin for order of salvation. Paul has been illustrating it in the text. Back in verse 5, he wrote about regeneration, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. That's being given a new heart, right? That's going from death to life. And then at the beginning of verse 8, right, he wrote, for by grace you have been saved, right? Grace and regeneration come before faith. 
Paul wasn't just kind of flippantly putting these things in. He was led by the Holy Spirit to place things in their proper order. It's not a happenstance thing. He put grace through faith, grace first. Even before that, he talks about regeneration, which I believe happens after grace. So there the order is a little different, but make no mistake about it. He put grace, in our verse, he put grace first for a reason, because it comes before faith. When we look at the full ordo salutis, order of salvation, which I don't have for you today, and we've mentioned before briefly, faith is actually several steps down the line in God's salvation plan. So why do we make such a big deal about faith? I think it's because we've been taught to do so by countless authors, preachers, other believers, friends, all, I would say for the most part, well-intending people. And I totally believe, in my conviction, after reading this text and actually after studying it, studying it in some depth, I think we ought to switch it up and begin to emphasize grace much more. We should become like Paul who preached grace and who wrote about grace a lot, right? You've read his epistles. Grace, grace, grace. Think about Paul before his conversion. He was Saul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? You know, circumcised on the eighth day. He was as Jewish as you could be. He was a a super Jew in a sense, super religious. He was a Pharisee. He was uh, doing what his clique, religious clique, did in his day, and that was persecute Jesus and the way, right? That's what the church was called then. He, he was also, guess what? He was also dead in his sins and trespasses, the things that he walked in. But God, who is rich in mercy and who loved him with a great love, right, rescued him from spiritual death and judgment on the Damascus road, right? Paul had been saved by grace, You see, when he writes these things, not only is he under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he writes and speaks from experience, from what he experienced. Grace is what he experienced, right? And this is why he wrote about grace so much. It's really interesting in the ESV, which I prefer. You all know that by now. I do like the NASB, though. The word grace appears 82 times in his epistles. That's pretty frequent. 82 times. Charis, that's the Greek for grace. It shows up 82 times in his epistles. Paul was addicted to grace. He emphasized grace. But you know what? He did emphasize faith too. He did. There is something else that I'd like to mention before we move on. We can very easily turn faith into a deed if we're not careful. When a person says, when I came to Christ and put my faith in Him, which is something that I read on Facebook every 17 minutes, some well-intending Christian writes something like this. In fact, I was looking at a testimony the other day by a guy who says, 30 years ago, when I came to Christ and put my faith in him, everything's changed. I'm like, hallelujah, brother, but man, your terminology's way off. This is, this is something that people say all the time. When I came to Christ 10 years ago, five years ago, what, I've never changed that for anything. When I put my faith, when I put my faith in him, what are they actually doing? They are actually declaring that it is their deed of faith that got them saved. That's what they're doing. 
They don't re- I would say that some probably realize that. I don't think most people do. And yet, faith is not something we possess on our own or do on our own, according to Ephesians and the rest of Scripture. Faith is what? Like grace, like repentance. They're gifts given and received. Okay? Faith is our response to what has already taken place, namely the supernatural grace work of the Holy Spirit, right? As MacArthur put it, faith is breathing the breath that God's grace supplies, or as Jones put it again, faith is the channel by which grace comes to us. So, instead of telling people about our faith and how we came to Christ, we should tell them about how God came to us in mercy and love while we were dead in sin and how he made us alive together in Christ by grace through faith. That's the Christian's testimony, friends. We didn't come to Christ on our own. We didn't bring some kind of faith to him. Something happened to us first. That's what we should boast primarily, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. We are saved by grace first through faith, the channel by which it comes. I do believe that this is what Paul meant in the text, and if that is what he meant, this is what he intended here, why do believers continue to boast about their faith and their coming to Christ by faith or however? It could be a couple of things. It could be ignorance. They, maybe they don't understand grace Maybe they don't understand salvation. Maybe they don't understand the nature of faith. I would say in this day and age, that's highly probable because biblical ignorance is unprecedented today. And I don't say that with a lash or a mean spirit or attitude or anything. We are all ignorant of God's truth in some way, shape, or form, especially me. Could be ignorance. It could be not understanding grace, not understanding the nature of faith, not understanding the order, not understanding God's actual plan, what he does. There is no bad or no shortage of bad theology in the church today. It could also be pride, right? It could also be pride. People are, we are by nature, glory hogs. We are. I'm a glory hog, man. We love to boast about our accomplishments. We love to associate ourselves with things that bring us positive attention, praise, accolades, right? Think about this, friends. In the U.S., we are taught from birth to be earners. We are. We are raised in a merit system. From grades in school to promotions at work, right? If we perform well, we will be rewarded. That is about as American as you can get. If we slack off, we will not be rewarded. Although the tides have changed, today people who sit on their duff and do nothing are highly rewarded by our federal government, which is bringing down the idea of earning and merit, which might actually be a good thing. We are indoctrinated into this merit idea, this meritorious sort of earning and reward thing. We are indoctrinated into this way of thinking, more so in this nation than in any other nation. And the trouble is, 
we layer these ideas onto Scripture. We do. We think of faith as our good deed. And we think of grace as our reward. That's what we do. Let me, let me repeat that because this is massive. This will, if you're in that camp, it will destroy your theology. And praise God because it needs to get wrecked. We think of faith as our good deed. And we think of grace as our reward. We do. And guess what we do? We boast and we boast and we boast. And you know what, friends? Paul annihilated that line of thinking right here in this text. He decimated it. There isn't even a hint of human effort, human deed, human reward, human merit in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Not even a gram, not a grain of sand of it. It's nowhere to be found. And guess what? It's nowhere to be found anywhere else in Scripture. And we would say, well, I don't know. I've seen some Scriptures. Trust me, it's not there. We think it is. It's not there. If it's the same in Ephesians 1 through 10, it has to be the same everywhere else in Scripture, or Scripture is contradictory and false. Scripture affirms Scripture. So if Paul writes this in Ephesians 1 through 10, then everyone else that wrote Scripture affirms it, even though some of their language might vary and be different. You might be looking at a different genre of literature. Who knows? But for the most part, you can trust me in this. Scripture is it's, it's inerrant, right? Which means that what Paul is saying here stands for all Scripture. And that's just a big, nasty horse pill we have to swallow. <laughs> oh, that's the standard. But, 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 but what about... But, 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 and I would say so often what we are doing is actually leaning upon our upbringing, the merit system we've been raised in, and we take that theology, that false theology, and we layer it onto truth. We are saved by grace, which is the unmerited favor and one-way love of God through faith, which is the channel by which it comes to us. How do we become who we are? By grace through faith. Let this truth sink in and experience the fuller joy of salvation. It ain't what you did. You were dead in your sin. But God, so fantastic, so wonderful. What a burden blaster. You mean that since I didn't bring myself into this thing that I've got to somehow manage it and keep it going and if I fail, I'm toast? That's the logical idea behind if you brought yourself in, then you can certainly take yourself out, right? Well, guess what? That's not true, so guess what? Rest in the eternal security that comes with this truth. It's all God all the time. Paul continues to drive this point home, right? Look at verses 8c and 9 with me. Oh, man, look at this. And this is not your own doing. <laughs> right? Just ninja kick to the face. I'll be shredding the guitar, right? You've seen School of Rock? Real good. This grace is shredding our deeds, right? 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, he says. It is the gift of God. Can you say that with me? It is the gift of God, right? Hallelujah, amen. Close your Bibles. Let's get out of here and go get a pizza. And he says, hold on, I'm not done. Verse 9, not as a result of works. <laughs> kink, kink, kink. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Wow. I'm like Gallagher up here, right? Thank God I don't have watermelons in front of me. <laughs> Yesterday we got destroyed. Put a big old half a watermelon in a bag, walking it outside on the tile floor. The bag explodes. The watermelon falls, completely explodes. It was awesome. I was like, honey, let me know when you're done with cleaning that up. No, I, I got in there. So what did Paul do here? He reiterated again the nature and origin of grace, right? Of faith, if you will. They are the gift of God, right? They're heavenly, they're divine, they come down to us, right? We don't have them on our own. We're not born with some measure of faith hidden in some quadrant. We don't have grace in us already, right? They are the gift of God. He's talking about the origin of grace, of faith. They come down to us. They are not of our own. They are not, what, the result of our works, not the result of our good deeds, not the result of our religiosity. They're not the result of anything else that has to do with us. They are not a reward for our coming to Christ or for our obedience, right? They're not what Joel Osteen says over and over and over. You've got 30,000 people in his church every weekend, and we all say, wow, look how the Spirit is moving. No, when you have a guy constantly telling people that it's up to them to do something, and people are pragmatic these days, they want to go and get the steps on how to do something and how to be blessed. And if they can just believe a little harder, which they all believe they can do, then they'll get the blessings. This is why his church is filled. If we switched up our preaching here, this place would be so slammed. If I just started preaching what he preaches, he's an ear tickler. Okay, look, grace and faith are not a reward for our coming to Christ, right? We were what? Spiritually dead in the sins and trespasses in which we walked. Spiritually dead people do not have faith. They do not have the ability to come to Christ or the ability to obey. They do not have it. They are, in a sense, corpses. They are flatlined, right? They are unresponsive. They are immobile. They are, as it says over and over and over, they are dead but God, right? Mario's favorite phrase this week. We were texting. He listened to the sermon. But God, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How did God make us alive together with Christ, right? He gave us his gifts. What gifts? Grace through faith. Why did he do this? Because he is rich in mercy and he loved us with a great love. Notice 9a, not a result of works. Our salvation is not a result of our works. It is the result of Christ's work, singular. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. He performed, performed those works for you, for me. 
And it is by those works that we have been purchased and redeemed in accordance with God's mercy, love, grace, and plan. Grace through faith are God's gifts to us, which means that salvation belongs to God alone. It is His act. It is His work. And because of this, what? No one may. Amen. Believers cannot say things like, look at what I did. Look at how I came to Christ. Look at my faith. I'm better than others because I have faith. Unbelievers are pathetic because they don't believe in Jesus. Now, you would say, I would never say that of an unbeliever. You're never critical of what unbelievers do? Same thing. Well, I wouldn't behave like that. Why would we entertain these thoughts about others? Maybe even say these things from time to time, right? When it wasn't that long ago that we were in the same boat. We were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we walked. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you know what separates us, the believer Christians, from the rest of sinful, wicked humanity? Grace through faith. That's it. If we remove, and we can't, but if we could, if we could remove grace through faith, you know what would happen? We would find ourselves back in Egypt. There would be no deliverance from the world or from the prince of the power of the air, the devil. It's by grace through faith that we have been delivered. So guess what? There's no room for boasting. Boasting is sin. Boasting is the mark of a prideful person. A prideful Christian is what? An oxymoron. God opposes the proud, especially his children when their heads get puffed up. Think of how he disciplined his people, the Israelites, when they became prideful, or what the scripture says all the time, stiff-necked. Well, you see poison snakes coming and biting them. You see enemy invasions. You see deportation. You see Babylon. Guess what? God is God. He hasn't changed. He will discipline his children. If you wake up in the morning and you step down and you feel something slithery and you got a bunch of vipers on your floor, you should repent. That's weird. He will discipline us too if we are not willing to and do not repent. Pride has no place in the life of a believer. None. Boasting about what we did and about our faith is unbiblical. It is. Imagine with me, a man is swimming in the ocean, and suddenly he goes under. He disappears, right, for a few moments, and then suddenly he surfaces face down. A few moments later, a lifeguard dives in, swims out beyond the breakers, and takes a hold of him and, and, and pulls him to the shore, right? And the first thing he does is he checks his vitals, right? Heart rate, breathing, these kinds of things, right? Our nurses know what's up. That's what you do. You know, if you, what's going on here? This tells you how you're going to deal with him, right? And, and he checks his vitals. He checks his pulse, you know, and, 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 and there's no pulse. This, this man has drowned. This man is dead. Gone. And so the lifeguard will 
calmly begin to administer CPR, right? He does this for several minutes, as long as he can. And yet suddenly the man opens his eyes and begins to cough up seawater, right? And then what does the lifeguard do? He rolls him onto his side, right? And seawater starts to come out. An ambulance is called or already there. The, the man is then put in the ambulance and rushed to the hospital, right? Okay, and then, and then, and then here he, in this scenario, he, ma- he makes a full recovery, right? One week later, he returns to the beach and he begins to tell people about what happened to him, right? He's just so elated and exuberant, you know. Oh, he begins to, to boast about what he did to save himself. Well, I was swimming, and I must have passed out, and, and uh, I, I, I drowned, and then I, uh, I, I floated myself in such a way that the lifeguard could retrieve me, and, and then, you know what I did? I let him perform CPR on me. And after about 50 breaths, I realized he needed a tic-tac. I decided to open up my eyes, puke up the Pacific Ocean, and then breathe. One week later, here I am, alive and well. I pretty much saved myself. You people should applaud me. Uh, people around him began to look at one another in bewilderment, scratching their heads. And they began to mumble, This man has lost his mind. This man is crazy. A vacationer, you know, steps forward and says, Mr. Um, um, uh, Mr. Pardon me, um, with all due respect, you, 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 you drowned. I, I saw your lifeless body floating out there in, in, right outside of the waves there. I, and, and, and then when the lifeguard brought you in and they picked you up and, and brought you onto the beach, I saw your angs, your angs, your arms, right? I mixed two things here. I saw your arms dangling. I saw that your chest was frozen, that it wasn't moving, right? They, they checked your vitals. I was standing right over you, and, and, and you, you were dead. In fact, if it hadn't been for that lifeguard over there in the booth over there, you would still be dead. He performed CPR on you. He saved your life. You did nothing but float and then lie there in the sand motionless. You, you, you know what? You should tell us about the lifeguard. He's the hero, not you. You know, boasting about our work in salvation is as ridiculous as this drowned man boasting about how he saved himself. He was dead. He did nothing. The lifeguard saved him. He should tell others about the lifeguard, his hero, not about himself, right? We were dead. We did nothing. Christ saved us by grace through faith. We, we did nothing. We should tell others about Christ, our hero, not about ourselves, not about our faith. Same thing. And that is Paul's point here. But he wasn't finished He had two more spikes that he was about to use to drive this God-alone truth deep into the Ephesians' hearts. These are the spikes that are designed to kill the glory-sucking vampire old self in ourselves. 
Because we are, by nature, glory-sucking vampires. We are, even after we're saved. Yeah. Speaking of that, well, I won't say it because it might be embarrassing, but there was a lot of vampire movies on in my house yesterday, and, and one of the characters in the movie, I'll just give you a little nugget, he glistens. I was in the other room in the Word of God. And then at the end, I was in front of the glistening vampire. It was terrible. Oh. Paul's not done. He's got some vampire spikes here, right? That he's just going, tink, 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 die, old self, die, vampire. Look at verse 10a with me. Look at this, man. This is insane. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Vampire slain spike number one. We are his workmanship. Okay, friends, we are not the product of our own work in salvation. We did not do certain things that initiated or aided that process. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy and who loved us with a great love, what did he do? He made us his workmanship. How? By giving us his gifts, grace through faith. Guess what, friends? God is the workman. He's the worker of this thing. Can I get an amen? God is the builder. If you are a Christian, God is building you. The Scripture says we are the holy temple of God and Christ is the chief cornerstone, right? Guess what else Scripture says? It says God is the potter, right? If you are a Christian, guess what you are? His clay. Guess what He's doing? He's molding you into the image of Christ. And God's promise to us is that He will complete this work Philippians 3.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What are we? We are the result of his workmanship, not our own. Which means what? That he deserves all the glory, right? If we are going to boast, we should boast about the workmen, not ourselves. Amen? Amen. That's a vampire slaying spike. That's number one. Vampire spike, spike. Spike. Number two. Vampire slaying spike. Number two. That's just, I should not have written it that way because I can't say it. Look at it. Look at the scripture again. Created in Christ Jesus. And this, is, this is brilliant. It's not me that's brilliant. It's the scripture that's brilliant. It's God who's brilliant, right? This point right here, creating Christ Jesus, it points back to Genesis 1. It does. Created. It points back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At first, the earth was what? Without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? And then what happened? And through His Word, God breathed, right? He breathed light and life in the heavens and on earth, right? From nothing, we read there, God created all things. From nothing, God created all things. It is similar with us. When we were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked, we were void and in darkness. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, what did he do? What did he do for us? He breathed and spoke new life into us by the same Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep. God did what for us? He caused us to pass from darkness to light, from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have become a new what? Creation by the very breath and Word of God through the Holy Spirit. Did the universe create itself? No. Did the earth create itself? No. You can answer. Did we create ourselves? No. Did we somehow create spiritual life? In our corpse bodies? No. God is creator. He alone creates physical life and he alone creates spiritual life. And guess what, friends? He does it by his own breath and word in accordance with his own will and plan. If you are a Christian, the creator, God, right, made you a new creation in what does it say? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the source of our salvation. And we have been hidden in him by God, it says in Colossians 3 3. Fantastic passage. Our new being, right? Our new creation, our new being is the direct result of God's work, which means that he what? Deserves all the glory. How can we be glory sucking vampires when we didn't do any of this stuff? What should we do if we are to boast? If we boast, we boast about who? The Creator, not ourselves. How did we become who we are? We are God's workmanship, and we have been created by God in Christ, right? That's how. Lastly, Paul told the Ephesians why they had been created in Christ Jesus, not how or who they were or who they are but why they had been created in Christ Jesus. They had been created in Christ Jesus, friends, for a purpose which Paul described in the rest of verse 10, right? Let's look at the why. This is why we've become who we are. This is our purpose. Look at the rest of 10 with me. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. This is one of the most backward things Paul ever wrote. You know that? You, you can't get more upside down than this. this is one of the most backward things. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works? Wait, 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 hold on a second, man. The world says that good works actually lead to salvation. Paul put the opposite here. Salvation leads to good works. This is why what he said is so backwards and so controversial in this world. And I tell you, if there were any Jews in his congregation, it's Ephesus, there might have been a couple, who knows. If there were any Jews in the congregation, this is the moment where they got a little tweaked. Why? Because they had been raised in a merit system. Do this, God rewards. Do this, God rewards. Do this, God will save you. Obey, obey, do this. Now, I just want to just say it again. This is the gospel. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace through faith to 
good works. Grace produces good works. Faith in Christ will be accompanied by good works, right? James chapter 2. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is our purpose. That's why we've been created in Him. Good works, what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are these good works? Boy, I tell you, I've been really considering getting on that worship team. That's my good work. That's how I respond. It's not what it is. I mean, it could be, I guess, in a sense. What good works did God prepare in eternity? This is mind-blowing. He prepared beforehand, meaning before He created the world. What good works did God prepare in eternity past for us to walk in now? Right now, not tomorrow, not next week. Now! They are summarized in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. More particularly, 37 through 40. This is why I had this read. These are the good works that this text points to. 27, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What do we see here? We see what's called the Decalogue. What we see here is the Ten Commandments in summary. Commandments 1 through 4 have to do with loving God rightly. They do. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, no idolatry, these things. Right? Commandments 1 through 4 have to do with how we love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. That's what commandments 1 through 4 have to do with. Commandments 5 through 10, I don't know why God only wanted four for himself, and then he, you know, he gave, what, six or five, I guess, six more uh, that have to do with something else, right? Commandments 5, his will. Commandments 5 through 10 have to do with what? Loving others, our neighbors, rightly, right? Don't steal from them. Don't, don't take their spouse. These kinds of things. What has God done here, friends. He has created us in Christ Jesus to obey His law. Why? What does the law do? It reflects God's holiness and character. We have been created in Christ Jesus to obey God's law so that we can reflect God's holiness and character to the world just as Adam and Eve did before the fall and just as Jesus, the second Adam, did during His incarnation, friends. That's why God has created us. And to what end? The glory of God. We have been created in Christ Jesus to obey God's law, to reflect God's holiness and character in the world, right? Image bearers, and to bring God glory. If you are a Christian, this is what God prepared beforehand for you to do. Pretty incredible, isn't it? That's why you exist as a Christian to obey His law, to be a right image bearer, to bring Him glory. That is why we have been put in Christ. 
That is why we have been saved. That is why we exist. That is why we are new creations. You know, as old creation, before being made new, we, 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 the, the only purpose of the law was to tell us that we're in trouble. And, and, and when we pass from darkness to light, by grace through faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to obey God's law, law rightly and to bear His image rightly and to bring Him glory rightly. It's, it's like the paradox of the Christian religion. We're saved from the penalty of the law. It condemned us. We're saved from that so that we can now obey it. The purpose of the law in our lives is to, is to give us direction. Well, I just follow Jesus. Well, if you're following Jesus, you're following the law because that's what he did. Uh, no. Uh, uh, yeah. I hate that, that Christians say that today. Well, the law doesn't have any purpose for me. I don't have to pay attention to that. I just follow Jesus. You know what the law is for the believer? It is a very practical way to follow Jesus. Because if someone says, I just follow Jesus, and they've got to read the four Gospels over and over and over and over again and, and try to get his patterns down and all that, I, I tell you what, that's a lot of work. You know what you can do? You can just turn over to Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17, and read the Ten Commandments and say, there's what Jesus did. This is how I follow him. This is how I bear the right image. This is my calling. Well, I've been called to be a pastor. You know what? Primarily, you've been called to be obedient before you become a pastor or anything else. We have been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of obedience to Christ Jesus. I want to challenge all of us this week to go ahead and, 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 and read. Make a note of this, please. Read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, right? Write down or print the Ten Commandments. Look them over. Get familiar with them. And I want to say this with, with all the love and grace and mercy that I can. If you are an unbeliever, these Ten Commandments stand as a witness against you. You have broken them just as all of us have. And God is going to punish you. And the only way out is Jesus Christ. He alone can save you. He alone obeyed that law perfectly for us. And He alone now, through His death, burial, and resurrection, gives us the ability to obey it at all. If you are a Christian... The Ten Commandments stand as a reminder for how we should live. They tell us where we are off. They tell us where we are on. Let's make it our goal as a gospel-centered community to obey God's law, right? To bear His image in this fallen world as rightly as we can, to bring Him as much glory as we can, right? That's what we'll be doing when we set our sights on the law and we obey. And I think that we should also make it our goal to help one another do this. Amen.